0: Good morning, my name's Brad And uh, this morning is a a great morning for us as a church Uh, Not just because we get to do what we always do And celebrate the the risen King Jesus uh, And the life that he's called us to But we also uh, are taking a step into obedience and faithfulness I believe by uh, commissioning Trip and Jessica And the entire Forgin clan into a season of sabbatical that actually will start, uh, I don't know, there's not like a time clock down thing, but Tuesday. it'll start Tuesday. Uh, it'll start Tuesday and it'll go through uh, November 17th, uh, roundabout. Uh, and the reason I say that that's a, a faithfulness and obedience for all of us uh, is because a Sabbath rest, or taking a, a sabbatical, is actually a calling God gives us not to take a rest from work, or to say, uh, no more mission or no more church. Like, uh, we really need to make sure Tripp does nothing for six months. We make sure uh, Jessica doesn't lift a finger. The, the calling, though, is actually to, to take a rest from even doing things that you excel at and that are crucial. So uh, Tripp and Jessica, like any member of this body, uh, is crucial to, to us being a, a family of missionary servants, like we could talk about uh, but the rest that we're calling them into and that they're walking into and that we're supporting them in is a rest uh, from, from using those things that are creative and excellent and wonderful and actually focusing on the work of seeing God's love just directly to them. Or as uh, my, my good friend uh, Eugene Peterson always says, uh, we, we take rest... Uh, to hear the voice of God and remember what it sounds like and remember what he says to us so then when we walk out uh, into life we can see it and we can hear it and we're attuned to it. Uh, and so we're, uh, we're commissioning them into a season of rest, of reflection, of prayer, of enjoyment. And so this is what it, it means for you guys. Uh, it means if, uh, as always, like you're... Uh, the care for your soul and your life is going to happen, as Tripp will talk about, uh, a lot in DNA groups, a lot in missional community with your missional community leaders, a lot in this church space uh, under the care of us as elders and deacons. And so for you, what that means is to continue uh, receiving care and being discipled and making disciples in all of those spaces. Uh, it just means if you know we don't have the right chairs or we don't know where something is, Uh, you don't call Trip, you would call me or Jared or one of the deacons or something like that. Does that that make sense? Is that like a rule? Also, though, it means that what you will do is when you think and consider the Forgin family, you don't say, oh, I guess they're super off limits. It means that you call them and text them and say, I would love to hang out and know you and be known by you and and love you. Uh, So I believe that the Spirit of God is going to call many of us to do that and to have them over in our houses for dinner and just be relationally connected to them and ask them, like, if I could command you, uh, tell you, strongly urge, exhort you to ask them consistent questions like, what do you hear God saying in your life? What do you see about Jesus right now in this season? How are you doing? Those are like the, the three questions, like, so... What are you hearing from God? What are you, where are you seeing Jesus in your life right now? And how are you doing? So I really want us to do that. Will you commit to asking them those questions when you see them and when you think of them? Um, yeah. And then you can go over to their house and things like that. There's, there's not a lot. There are some rules. Like if you see Trip here before 945 in the morning on a Sunday, you have to send him home uh, and tell him to come back at 945. Uh Yeah, that's like probably the only rule that requires to interview. Um, I have others. Uh, But anyway, uh, be praying for them. Uh, This is really important for us as a church to acknowledge that while God has given us tons of gifts and God has given us each other, Jesus is the hero and he's crucial. And that's one of the things I love about this body of believers. Um, We all get to play and we all have a participation to do. We've all been given authority over things. uh, But really... The, the hero is not a man or a group of elders or a group of deacons or even your missional community leaders. The hero in this body is and always will be Jesus. And that's really beautiful and wonderful, right? Uh, and so, Tripp, uh, if you don't mind coming up, I'm going to pray for you on behalf of the whole church and Jessica, who's working for the airline.
1: Yes. That will be unnamed. That will be unnamed. <laughs>
0: uh, Jesus, I thank you for Trip and Jessica. I thank you for... Their faithfulness, to hear uh, even your words where you say, um, I'm just looking for people that will put their hand to the plow and will follow me and they'll fix my eyes on me. I thank you for the race that they run and the way that they, they pursue you with their whole lives, they pursue your mission, uh, that they, they want to see their entire uh, life uh, orient, oriented around who you are as their father uh, and who you are as their savior. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for their lives. We pray for them in this season. We pray that your your spirit will meet them in uh, the morning and the evening, that they will see and delight in you. Uh, pray for us as a body that we will, uh, by, your, by your spirit and by your grace, be able to love and care for them in this time. And we pray, too, for your mission in this city, uh, that even while we are asleep and at rest, we see your marvelous works uh, happening all the time, uh, and that you are sending and creating a revival in this place in our hearts uh, we thank you, Jesus, for, for all that you are and all that you do. And we cannot wait, as we just sang, to sing for eternity of, of who you are and just to celebrate. There is the king uh, who saved the world and saved and restored everything. Jesus, we thank you. We pray for this time as we hear uh, from Trip that your spirit will speak to us and convict us. It's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, good morning. Happy birthday, Emily. Sitting in the front row. See what happens when you sit in the front row, you get called out. That's why everyone sits in the back. Um, Well, good morning. We are going to continue in our series on what it means to live the life of a disciple um, who makes disciples of God, who uh, baptizes them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And not only does that, but also teaches them to obey what Jesus commanded. And we've been talking about that this summer. And so if you've missed that, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to those things because it really is the lifeblood of how we believe we're called to live as the church. And today I want to talk about our life as the church. Our life as a church, and so as we look back over church history, if you look back over church history, and just specifically if we just go back one century, the 20th century, um, in places where Christianity has had um, the most growth, I think in one of those places is actually China. Um, and even though this was a, a communist country at the beginning of the century um, that really instituted atheism and uh, prohibited citizens from, from belonging to a religion, uh, Christianity grew. And during during the rulership of Mao Zedong, um, uh, religious movements were brutally oppressed. And many religious buildings were destroyed. And yet it grew. See, Christianity in China was very young in its roots in China. And the number of followers in China um, that began at the the beginning of that century was very small. But at the end of the century, um, there's an estimate that Probably this is probably a low estimate, but 80, billion, 80 million, not billion, 80 million people over 50 years came to, to know Jesus. Grew from pretty much nothing to 80 to 90 million people. Now, if you contrast that with Russia, who kind of went through the same communist takeover in 1917, um, the church in Russia had been established for quite a long time. There were church buildings in every town. Many people attended services on Sunday. Um, but when the Russian people went through the same type of persecution where, um, where atheism was taught from a young age and religious buildings were destroyed and, um, and people who confessed Jesus were killed, um, the Russian church did not grow like the Chinese church. And so as you think about that, you have to ask why. Why is that? And obviously we know the Holy Spirit was moving in China, but I think it also has to do with our understanding or construct of what is the church. You see, in Russia, where the church was established for a longer period of time, um, very much like the church in our country and the church in Europe and the church in North America, um, the church had become a place or an event. And when that got oppressed and controlled by communist leaders... It became stagnant. However, in China, where the church flourished, it flourished not as a what, but as a who. People didn't quit going to church because they had no concept of going to church. They just kept on being the church. They had no concept of of having to come to a gathering or go to a building to be the church. And so that church grew by leaps and bounds through people just living as the church in life with one another, inviting other people into that life so that they would see Jesus. As I think about this and as I think about our country and really the world, I think one of Satan's greatest lies that often maybe even gets overlooked is that Christianity and Jesus and the church is just a building or a service. You see, I think it would be hard to find a pastor or a theologian or even people within the church that would say, no, the church is a who, not a what. We don't disagree with that theologically. No one disagrees with that. But yet the, the bridge from, from understanding that into practicing being the church has long been abandoned. And I want to say that gap grows wider every year. Often what is communicated is that the church is a what. If you just look at, at signs or if you look at websites, you will see what is being communicated. It'll say, X church is where you belong. Or invite your friend to church. Or we will see you at church on Sunday. I was at, led a church in Philly and we went through this whole sign campaign. It was one of the banes of my existence there. Um, And they wanted to put this whole committee together, so we did. But, um, uh, you know, there was one guy that wanted to have, like, all the words that you continued to, like, change out on signs so you could put these little pithy sayings up. I was like, there is no way we're doing that. (laughs) For one, like, those sayings are terrible. But then someone has to come up with them every week. Um, Anyway, where I'm going is, um, you've ever seen that sign that says, you know, what's missing from church? And has the U and the R missing out of there, right? Like, um, I it's really stupid. But we've, we've reduced church to those things. I think even as we sing as kids, when I was a kid, I don't know if you guys know this song, do you guys know the song where you like made the little like church and this, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, see no people. Or you like, you put your fingers in and you see the people, right? Like, um, depends on what time you come. If it's 10, there's probably still like this, right? Um, just saying, we do start at 10. Um, but, Got to get that in there before I leave. Um, (laughs) But it's so crazy sad that this is really unknowingly what we're sinking into. Even this morning, I was sitting on a stage praying like I usually do beforehand, and Sam came up and he was talking to me, and he was like, He was like talking about how Sunday wasn't the seventh day of the week, it was actually the first day of the week. And he was singing, he was telling me that there's this song that he hears being played that on the seventh day of the week, we go to worship God. That's pretty sad that that's the only day of the week that we go to worship. That's not anything to do with our parenting. Um, please don't hear that. But, but maybe it is. I don't know. No, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but, but that's the reality of what we continue to sing and teach in our churches. And in most of Europe and most of North America, not only has the church become a what, it's become a place or an event that has led to this culture that come see the master teach. He will feed you, he will give you what you need. And it's led to to this idea of really just lazy Christians who either believe that they don't know anything, which probably isn't true and so they don't share, or maybe they really don't know anything because the only time they ever get fed is when they come on Sunday and hear someone talk to them. I would say not only is that like too much pressure on us people that talk, right? But it's reduced mission to listening to a pastor as the only evangelistic tool. Sundays then become some sacred cow, and discipleship is equated to just getting more information into people's heads. Just hearing more teaching. Spiritual nourishment is really defined by by Sunday morning worship experiences. And the words of the pastor or the, the worship team who's singing songs um, lead us to, to worship God. But then the rest of the week, we just lazily live out the teachings of Jesus. And most of the time, we just starve ourselves from the Word of God. Just we get enough on Sunday to fill us up that we hope that we get back on the next week. It's so pervasive in our culture. The fact that we even have to talk about structures today and what it means to live life together tells me that it's messed up. That we're in constant need of being de-churched in our minds. One of the reasons why we call this time the gathering on Sunday morning is a teaching tool to help redefine the church in your mind. The church not as a what, but as a who. That you and I are the church. We don't go to church On Sunday when we get together, what we were doing is gathering as the church, not going to church. This is not just semantics. It's evidence that we actually really need to rethink and emphasize that you are the church. I want to remind us this morning that the church is a who. It's a people. God has has never designed us um, as his people to go to church. Rather, he always wanted his people to actually image him wherever we go all the time, wherever you are. If you have your Bibles, you can open John chapter 4. And what we, do, what we find in John chapter 4 is, is Jesus is traveling around um, from Judea to Galilee. And in the, in the way to get there, he has to travel through Samaria. And Jesus has been walking all day long on this hot, dusty road. And, and his, he and his disciples come to a, to a town in Samaria. And his disciples go into that town to, to find some food. And Jesus sits down at the well on the outskirts of town. And as he's sitting there, a woman comes to get some water. And this is midday. and It's, it's rare that, that, that she would come at that time because most of the time they would come in the morning. And so as, as she comes, Jesus asked her to give him a drink. And if you uh, look in John chapter 4, verse 9, we see what happens here. In verse 9. The Samaritan woman, he said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? First of all, she's shocked that he would even speak to her. On one level, she's she's a woman viewed as, as lower in society then. But not only is she a woman, but she's a Samaritan woman. And if you know anything about Jews and Samaritans, they didn't agree they didn't get along on, on several points. Samaritans um, to the Jews were, were considered basically half-breeds, unclean often. They would, they would see a Samaritan and they would walk on the other side of the street so they wouldn't have to be near them and so they wouldn't become unclean and not be able to go to the temple. To Jews, she would have been probably the lowest of the low as a woman and as a Samaritan. And as we see further on in the story, she's used to being looked down on. She's used to seeing herself probably as worthless, and it's probably why she's here at this time of day. We don't know that for sure, but there's a good reason to believe that. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, she doesn't understand this. She doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. And she looks at Jesus sitting beside a well with no, uh, with no way to get a drink. And she kind of calls his bluff in some sense here in verse 11. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his son and his livestock. Basically, she's like, who do you think you are? She's probably thinking, do you think you're greater than Jacob? If you were greater than Jacob, you certainly wouldn't be talking to me. You have no way to get water out. How is that even possible for you to give me anything? Verse 13, Jesus responds. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus calls her bluff after she calls his bluff in some ways, right? And her reason or desire for drinking the water is really what he goes after. She was looking for a way to to get out of of work, or, or basically, maybe even getting out of a way to face ridicule, ridicule in society. But that's not what Jesus is offering. He pushes a little further. Verse 16, he says to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are writing saying, I have no husband. For you have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. I can kind of just imagine this scene where she was kind of a little bit snarky about getting water, and now she's floored in disbelief that Jesus knows this much about her. And from what we see in her next response is she actually gets excited to to find some knowledge out. That she was most likely not allowed to ever enter the Samaritan uh, temple And she definitely was not allowed to go to the temple in Jerusalem. Places of worship where God took place. And so she asked this question in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It's interesting that even back then, religion was established. Before religion, before Christianity even was established. That same lie was perpetrating the world. Worship with God was equated to a place. Jerusalem, Samaria, some temple. See, Satan is not very inventive. He just continues to do the same thing over and over and over again, leading humans to the way that he knows humans' heart wants to run. Verse 21, Jesus responds to her. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You see, Jesus doesn't condemn her behavior here. He doesn't condemn her thoughts. He connects with her core beliefs. Jesus meets her, her in her thinking about worship and the church which she never would have called a temple the church. But, but there's the same pattern. She asks him about Jerusalem. And he tells her that the, the place is not the point of worship. That worship actually occurs through the spirit in the heart. You see, the good news of the gospel is that now through the death and resurrection of Jesus, those that who believe in him actually become the temple of God. The place of God where God dwells. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says this, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will, he- I will be their God, and they will be my people. You see, the good news is that you and I have been redeemed, we've been restored, and so that now, all day long, we get to be a place of worship. That's really what it means to be the church. That you and I, those of us who have called on God, he has given us his spirit, the spirit of truth, so that we might lead others to worship Jesus. Not just on one day, but every day throughout the week. See, later on in the book of John, uh, Jesus tells us the same thing. He says in John 16, 13, "...when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth." For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, the purpose of the Spirit declaring the truths of God to you is not so that you and I can get fat on knowledge, but so that you and I can actually live the life that Jesus lived. And what did Jesus do? He went everywhere that everything you and I do would be submitted to Him and in line with your identity that God has given you now in the Father. You see, as humans, as a human, Jesus lived a life completely in the identity of the Godhead. Right, we've talked about identity a couple of weeks ago, but as God's people, as the church, God has restored that identity to us. It's not just for a few people who have come to Jesus, But it's for everyone, that everyone gets to be the church. And that's not just simply a pithy saying, but it's actually who you are. And as the church, I want to remind you that that you actually understand that. Not just so that you have some correct information so that you know that, but because when you truly actually understand that, and when you truly live in that identity, your life of worship will look different than the worship of our culture. It will look different than the worship around us and people around us who are worshiping everything else except for the one true God. See, as we think about being the church surrounded by the lies that the church is actually a place rather than a a people, and we think about calling people to be disciples of Jesus, we need to ask, how are we going to live that out? How are we going to be the church? What are the vehicles that for us as a church, as the body of Christ, to live in our identity so that we would actually grow in our understanding and dis- of Jesus and we would disciple others in their understanding of Jesus and that we would teach them to obey all that he said? So I want to talk about um, um, three things that we believe as a church are, are key structures, um, I kind of got a a little preview this morning if you were here during the early announcements. Um, But there's three uh, structures that we believe are necessary for discipleship to actually happen. And each one of these is actually unique, and each one of them is equally important that you lean into and be a part of. That That if you're going to be able to live out this gospel life in the power of the Spirit as the church, We believe all three of these things are something that you need to engage in so that you would grow in the gospel and that you would make gospel-centered disciples and that the life of God that he's always wanted for you, you actually get to live out. So I want to talk about these three discipleship tools that we have as a church. Um, The gathering, our missional communities, and our DNA groups. I'm going to talk about each one of them specifically and I'm going to spin out each one of them and just kind of quickly go through our Trinitarian understanding of who God is and and how each one of these teaches us something about God. So if we start with the gathering, our gathering is is generally our upward focus. It's it's where we work out our upward worship of God. It's where we're, we're teaching people to actually live a vertical life. What we're saying when we come together to gather is that that as the church in our public gatherings, we want people to, to walk out knowing that they're, they're loved by God and we want them to walk out loving other people. And when we say this, that when they understand that, that they would be willing to do anything Jesus wants them to do right now, and they would do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we take this understanding and we apply it um, To our Trinitarian understanding of a disciple, it would look a little bit like this. Yeah, you can put that up there. Um, So as the Father, in this gathering, we want to teach people the Father's love for them. And we want to teach them that because the Father first loved us while we were still His enemies. He loved us. And He sent His Son to redeem us and to adopt us into His family. And so we want to teach of the Father's love for each other and for us. When we talk about the Son, we want to teach them to submit to the Son and serve the Son because the Son submitted and served the Father. That's what Jesus did when he came to the earth. He submitted and served the Father and ultimately served us in that process. And we think about the Holy Spirit. We want In these gatherings, we want people to be inspired and filled by the Holy Spirit to do what he calls us to do. So when we come together, we desire that these times not, not be attractional, but actually attractive pictures of God's love. And is our vertical worship of what He's done for us. And as we worship to, uh, with each other, we equip each other to go back out and live a gospel life of purpose. If you would read on in the story of the woman in the well... We'll see that Jesus not only connects with her personally and doesn't just challenge her idea of a proper place to worship, now she thought about worship, but what he does is he actually transforms her heart into a worshiper. And that changes her actions. She runs back into town and brings people back out to meet Jesus. Can I tell you, that's our role as the church. To bring people to see Jesus. Not to bring people to see this place. Yes, we hope they find Jesus here. And yes, you should be inviting people to our gatherings. But what a disservice we would do to our city if we just converted people to seeing worship of Jesus occurs only once a week during this gathering. Do you know anyone in this city who's looking for another good event to fill their life up with? I sure don't. People don't need another thing to go to. Can I tell you, we have some amazing artists, but our worship music is never going to be cool enough to bring people to the day and block out enough time to listen to it. It doesn't matter if we got like Drake saved, right? And or Ariana Grande, whoever's like the top performer this week, right? Like if we got them saved or God got them saved, right? And, and they were up here singing every week. That's not going to be enough to bring people here. Can I tell you, my teaching is not going to be enough. Brad's teaching is not going to be enough. No one else we bring up here is ever going to be enough that people say, I've got to block out enough time to go see them. I've got to go make sure I go hear what they have to say. People in this city are not looking for something else to do. People in our city, in our world, are looking for something that is bigger than themselves. Something to make their life significant. They may not know it, but they are looking for Jesus. They're looking for the abundant life that he brings, not an event that they feel obligated to attend. This gathering is really important. You need to be a part of it. But it's you just can't truly make a full disciple of Jesus here. It's why we have other structures. We have a gathering so we can help people get their heads and hearts where they need to be so they can actually engage in the life of a disciple throughout the week. And so this is why we have smaller communities that we call missional communities. Uh, communities where we, where we commit to reorient our lives around the identity of a family of missionary servants. So that we would then proactively live out the gospel to a specific people in a specific place all throughout the week. Just for clarity, as we think about a missional community, a missional community is a group of people who live with gospel intentionality. They live with gospel intentionality with a clearly defined mission that they reorient their lives around and they adjust their schedules around so that the community that they're called to would hear the gospel and they, they would, the gospel would be declared and new disciples would be made and new disciples would be sent with, the, with their new identity and to more places in the city and more places around the world. And that's what we do within our missional communities where we, where we actively, proactively define mission and we are in a life around that. But as I say that, Please understand this as too, that when we call you to proactively define a people group that you're sent to together and that you're going to intentionally reorient your life around, please do not discount all the other times in your life, all the other hours of the week that you're not together with your missional community. Defining a mission doesn't mean that you're only on mission when you're with that defined people group or when you're together as a full missional community. The rest of your life throughout the week counts. You're on mission when you're at home, when you're at the store, when you're at the park, when you're in the workplace, when you're at school, when you're with your neighbors, when you're with your coworkers, when you're with any part of life. All of it counts as your life as a missionary. We said one of our identities is that we are a missionary. Right? We... We need to be paying attention to who God brings into your path each day and each moment. See, it's the idea that that not only that individual mission is is not important, but it's the fact that if we don't have combined mission together, then what we've done is we've lost the context to actually um, where, as the church, we train up disciples to be the church who would then make more disciples of Jesus. If you look at the life of Jesus, what Jesus does is he, he calls 12 people to follow him, 12 guys to follow him. And as Jesus is on his mission, he trains them for their mission. So the only way that we're going to effectively train people is that we would actually have a common mission. So at least there's some common activities where we can grow and we can train and we can pray and we can intentionally build for it and plan for it and build the life of community around it so that when the Spirit calls more people into a new mission field, to a new mission, they've been discipled in such a way that they know what it actually looks like to actually live as a, as a missionary. And they can train other people to do that as well because they've been discipled and actually had to truly worship God at all times of life. You see, that when we think about developing um, disciples within our missional community, we want to put it up to this triangle here, right? I got a little away from that. Um, But our general focus as a missional community is outward. When we think about the Trinity, in light of the Father, God the Father, this is where we're doing the one another's. In the New Testament, Jesus gives us over 400 one another's. He says, love one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, serve one another, etc., etc., etc. In the missional community, this is where we're practically going to work that out. We're going to practically work out Jesus' command to love one another. Primarily, though, by, by the means by which we show the world what God is like and we give, him tan, we, give God tangible, we give others tangible proof of what God is like, God's power to save us, is through our love for one another. We talked about that last week as one of the circles, right? You see, although we want to, to love one another in this gathering, and we do some of that here, it's only truly going to get worked out in a life where we're continually dying to self, where we're continually offering forgiveness to others, where we're continually serving one another. So we need to be in community in order to do that. And then as, as sons, as a servant of the king, this is where we're saying we're going to serve the least of these. This is where as a missional community, we're saying what does it look like to put hands and feet to serving people that God has put around us? It's a horizontal thing where we're caring for the marginalized within our community. And as a Holy Spirit, when we think about a missional community, we're saying, who do you want me to talk to about Jesus? That is one of the main reasons why the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Yes, the Holy Spirit reminds us of the truths of God and the Holy Spirit seals us, but the Holy Spirit also sent us. He's the sent one who sends us to declare the good news that Jesus is available, that Jesus is actually truth and there is new life that he offers to everyone. And so in a missional community, we're thinking about how are we loving one another, how are we serving the least of these, and how are we witnessing about Jesus in the context that he sent us to. So we have this upward, we have this outward, but we also need an inward that's why we have our DNA groups. The third part of this is our DNA groups. Our DNA groups are where two to three people, um, sometimes four, of the same sex, um, meet together to, to discover and to nurture and for action. It's a, it's a place where, where we look at God's word together, we discover who he is, who we are, where we nurture one another's hearts, and we call each other back to live a life that's in line with, with imaging God. See, our, our DNA groups is, is this inward focus. It's where we're saying we want to develop the inner person through our Trinitarian understanding. It's where we intentionally go after heart issues. So when we're thinking about this in a DNA group as the, as the father, we're asking a person, do they hear the father say, I love you? Are they communing with God as a father? Are we helping them to discern the father's voice? as the Spirit pours His love into us. Still love under the theme of Father, but now it's, do you know the Father loves you? Do I hear the Father saying, He loves me? Am I aware that the Spirit is telling me that? Because really, the reality is, if that is not there, we're not going to have disciples who make other disciples. If If we as disciples don't know the love of the Father, how can we even give each other confidence that they're actually followers of Jesus in the first place. That's what Romans 8 is really all about. So we have to make sure that people hear the love of the Father being poured into their hearts. As a son, we want to say, as servants of the king, this is where we're saying, there should be regular repentance and faith, which will equate with obedience in your life. So we want to regularly remind each other what Jesus told us to do. We want to ask questions of each other. Are you being faithful to what Jesus calls you to do? If not, do you understand that when you're not doing those things, that that's an unbelief, that that's false worship? And we want to lead people to repentance and faith so that they would actually obey and actually live out the life of a disciple. As the Holy Spirit, we want to think about, is the Holy Spirit telling you the Father's love? Is He telling you what Jesus wants? Is the Holy Spirit assuring you of your faith? Is he reminding you of the things that are true about you? In a DNA group is where we want to learn how to listen to the Holy Spirit, how we walk in the Holy Spirit, how we respond to the Holy Spirit. See, the DNA group is an is inward part of how a disciple looks. And really, it's, it's one of the the, the biggest tools we have here to help our hearts not forget the gospel, to be reminded of our hearts that, that we are greatly loved, that God's love has been lavished on you and on me. You see, I, I think it's a lot easier um, to live out the gospel, um, at least for a little bit of time in the eyes of others, um, but if we're, if we're actually looking at the heart behind it in our DNA groups intentionally, and we're intentionally providing space for that, space for the Holy Spirit to speak internally, the voice of others who are doing the, work, the hard work of caring for your heart, then we're not going to be able to be a lie about the truth of those things. You see, everything that we're doing as a church, as the people of God, needs to be moving towards these three emphases. Upward, outward, and inward. You can say it the other, another way, like head, heart, and hands. We've talked, we talked about in the Venn diagram last week, um, where you're really, if you're only engaged in one of those cycles, you're going to have a lopsided understanding of what a disciple looks like. And so it's our desire as a church that you would be engaged in all three of these areas. Not because like I think it's a good idea, but because it's a gospel issue that the people who are actually most effective in growing as disciple, and are most effective in helping other people grow as disciple, are going to be people who are engaged in all three of these things where their heart and their head and their hands are being poured into and being used every day. Can I remind you of a couple things here as I close? I want to give you some good news. The Holy Spirit has to do this work. You and I cannot turn people into disciples. None of these structures that I just talked about here can make it happen. You and I cannot argue or convince someone into the, in the truth in this gathering or anywhere else. You and I cannot live a good enough life in front of someone and love people in front of someone so that they'll desire Jesus in our missional communities. Your DNA group is never going to be able to ask the right questions. You're not going to be able to ask enough questions to convict someone's heart. But we believe that if we faithfully do what God has told us to do, he will accompany that with the spiritual work in our lives and the lives of others. And how do we know that? 1 Corinthians 2 says this, Now we've received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that changes hearts and transforms lives. The Spirit is the primary discipler. He's the equipper of people. And so what happens when we faithfully do what we call, are called to do, and we trust that He will do what He is going to, to do, and the good news is that God never calls us to do something on our own. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God is the one who starts and finishes the job of making disciples. You can do all three of these structures. You can put on great community events, we can have the coolest, hippest gatherings. We've got some cool lights and smoke or whatever you want to have, right? You can care for each other's hearts really well in DNA groups, but if you're not relying on the Holy Spirit to do His work, it will be pointless. It's why we see so many reminders in Scripture to pray. Because I think prayer reminds our forgetful hearts who actually is the powerful one. Who's the one who's doing the work? And the Bible tells us that God listens and he acts when we pray. James 5 says, The effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You and I, we get to ask God to do his work. We get to call on him to save the souls of our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, our acquaintances, the people that we don't even know yet. We get to ask him to disciple our own hearts so that we would believe the truths about what he said about us and that we would live out those truths more and more each day. We get to do that. It's not our job. It's a privilege. It's an honor. We get to ask our dad to adopt more kids into his family. We get to live in a completely new identity, one that we didn't earn. That is amazing. And I want to call us to those things not because it's a new law, but because of the gospel. Because of the great gift that you and I have been given to Stuart. That we would live out a new way in every day discipling others in the truths of God to save them so that they too would live in his identity. And that we would be a people and that we would actually be the church. We wouldn't just show up for some of these things. You wouldn't just show up for a gathering or show up to your DNA group or show up to a missional community, but that you would actively walk into those things as the church and that you would walk every day, wherever you are, as the church, imaging God to a broken world that is looking for something and they don't know it, but they're looking for Jesus. They're not looking for you. They're not looking for me. They're not looking for a missional community. They're looking for Jesus. And that's what we get to show them. That's what we get to reveal to them. And that's what we get to disciple one another in, in these structures so that we would see that more and more and more each day. Father, we love you. Father, we are so thankful that you go before us and that you go after us and that you go with us. Father, I pray that we would be a people that truly desire to be in relationship with you, that the love that you pour into our hearts will be poured into others. Father, that, that we would walk in these ways of discipling one another and discipling people around us so that they would see you. Father, we thank you that we get to live this life in this city. We thank you that it wasn't by accident that you placed us here. It wasn't by our own intention that we came to this city, but that you, before the beginning of time, planned that we would be here so that you could be seen. Father, I pray that you would make us reflective, amazing, dynamic pictures of who you are. People who truly walk in your love, who speak the truth, and who live it out in the everyday. Father, I thank you that we get to be the church and that we get to be the church together. So, Father, I pray that you would remind us through your spirit and that you would continue to disciple us. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Excellent. Well, Trip, thank you so much for bringing the word to us this morning. And so now what we're going